Shalom, and thank you for listening to our podcast. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, the president and dean of Valley Beit Midrash. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning, bringing cutting-edge ideas and innovative and pluralistic Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider making a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and enjoy the program. Thank you for inviting me. And um, tonight, I'd like to share... um, a few sources that touch upon um, a significant question that I've lived with for a lot, uh, for many years, and that was, we meet women at different places in in the Bible, in the Talmud, and you know sometimes they're just you know they're talked about as the wife of, you know they're usually some kind of supporting character in some way. And I asked, are they there for anything else besides being supporting characters? Do they have, is their presence a value or to teach us something? And that question is, is not such a simple question given the Jewish tradition because if they are there to do something, to teach us, they have a message for us, then why afterwards do they get so silenced? And I would like to share tonight two different characters that are, well, they've both, I'm sorry, they've been my playmates for many, many years, and I've talked to them and read everything about them and sort of, and one of them is Chana, and we met her on Rosh Hashanah, and we, we live with her. Um, throughout the year because she's supposedly very significant in prayer. We'll also meet Bruria, who is, who we knew to be the wife of, and I'd like to share that she's not only a supporting character either. What we will do with their legacy, again, is up to us. I will suggest already now, because I don't like, you know, I'd like to share where I, I will come to, and then so it, I have an agenda. I didn't just, you know, fall upon them, and I want it to be very honest. I looked for them. I looked really hard for many, many years in my life to find them. And I think that um, I believe that they're, they're not only a supporting characters. In these two cases, I think they're very sophisticated social critics. And the Talmud and the Jewish tradition gave them a voice as social critics. And we, uh, we don't know, did Bruria exist really, or did Hannah exist really? That's not our question now. It's, it, they're there in the tradition, and they're there with, I think, a serious critical eye. And they're there to critique when power goes wrong. And I think that one of the beautiful things that attract me to continue to look in the Jewish tradition 
is that I think it's very aware when its leadership goes corrupt or the misuse of power. They don't hide misuse of power by its leaders. And I think that both Chana and Bruria are there not only as supporting characters, not just, and there's a woman in the tradition, but they're there and critique people in power. So with that, I'd like to begin and uh, show you how I got to what I got to. Okay, so we meet Hannah in the Bible, in Samuel. And I'm wondering who can, who's willing to start reading. There was a man from Ramatayim of the Tufites in the hill country of Ephraim. His name was Elkanah, son of Yerohan, son of Elihu, son of Tofu, son of Tuf, and Ephraimite. <coughs> he had two wives, one named Chana and the other named Nina. Nina had children, but Chana was childless. Okay, and here you see again and again and again the two wives syndrome that goes throughout the Bible. One would be the beloved one, and the other one is the one, but she's usually barren, and the other, the, wom the woman who is a mother and has children. It's very often set up in this very strange zero-sum game. And it just, it's actually very disturbing, and it repeats itself and repeats itself, okay? This man used to go up from his town every year to worship and to offer sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. Kothni and Pinchas and his two sons of Eli were priests of the Lord there. One such day, Elkanah offered a sacrifice. He used to give portions to his wife Pina and to all her sons and daughters, but to Hannah he would give one portion only, though Hannah was his favorite, for the Lord had closed her womb. Moreover, her rival, to make her miserable, would taunt her that the Lord had closed her womb. This happened year after year. Every time she went up to the house of the Lord, the other would taunt her so that she wept and would not eat. Her husband, Elkanah, said to her, Hannah, why are you crying? And why aren't you eating? Why are you so sad? Am I not more devoted to you than ten sons? Okay, here you see, I mean, the, the kind of perhaps the sweet naivete of a husband who really wants to, you know, to make his wife feel okay, you know, and just says, why don't you come play with me? And it would be okay. I mean, you see that just, he comes with goodwill, but he's so off the mark of what it is that she's struggling with that it's, you know, it's just so striking. And then when you see it, look at what happens right the next pasuk, after they had eaten. In other words, it's she, he's so off that she has nothing to say. I mean, it's, like, it's not like she says, mm, thank you or not thank you. It's just he leaves her completely silenced because there's, you know, he's just off. Okay. After they had eaten and drunk at Shiloh, Hannah rose. The priest Eli was sitting on the seat near the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. In her wretchedness, she prayed to the Lord, weeping all the while. And she made this vow. O Lord of hosts, if you will look upon the suffering of your maidservant and will remember me and not forget your maidservant, and if you will grant your maidservant a male child, I will dedicate him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and 
no razor shall ever touch his head. And she kept on praying before the Lord. Ailey watched her mouth. Now Hannah was praying in her heart. Only her lips moved, but her voice could not be heard. So Ailey thought she was drunk. Ailey said to her, how long will you make a drunken spectacle of yourself? Sober up. And Hannah replied, oh no, my Lord, I'm a very unhappy woman. I have, I've drunk no wine or other strong drink, but I have been pouring out my heart to the Lord. Do not take your maidservant for a worthless woman. I have, I have only been speaking all this time out of my great anguish and distress. Then go in peace, said Ailey, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked. Okay, so we see that Hannah does not want to eat from the sacrifice. Right? And that's an interesting, she, it, you know, what is it that she cannot swallow literally? Right? I think that when Eli asks her that question, I would like to suggest that as far as she's concerned, it shows how off he was about what she, where she's at, that the sacrifice, that that prayer is unedible for her. She can't, she just literally doesn't eat. Then what happens is, does she, what does she do with her anguish? She, I mean, she, obviously, there's no conversation between her and her husband at that point when he's off. And so here we see that she believes that the temple is what? Is a place for her to go to as well. You know, it's also when we talk about where are men and where are women situated at different times. And she's not, she's not under, you know, she's not sitting under the table and sucking her thumb. But she really believes that the temple is also her place. And she goes and she prays as she usually prays, as people who have, and in what, what is she praying? She's praying from the depth of her subjective and painful experience. But guess what? The holy priest does not recognize that form of prayer. He does, it's just not something that he's used to. So, but what does he do when he's not used to, when they're in the face of difference? What does the priest do? Assumes that she's drunk. Assume, because he does not recognize it. So instead of saying, what are you doing? Or what is this? Or explain to me. He right away defines her and defines her as other, or you're a drunk. I don't recognize it, so obviously it's not prayer because it's not in my repertoire. And what's very nice here in that sense is that she stopped. She does not go silent either. And she says what she has to say. No, this is who I am. And one of the reasons why I think this is being read on Rosh Hashanah and is because I think here we have the situation where the priest does tshuva where the priest repents. So in that sense, she, she meets him, is not intimidated by him, is able to say, this is what I've done. And the greatness, I think, in this situation of the priest 
is that he acknowledges it. He's able to acknowledge that there is, at some point, a prayer that is different than what he's used to. Uh, in my last book, I spend a chapter doing, working on this. And I come also from the field of psychology. I sort of did both kinds of fields. And what's very striking is that there's a secular priest who does similar things. And the secular priest, his name is Freud. Are any of you psychologists in this? Okay, hi. So do you, I mean, in the case of Anna O. I'm trained as a psychoanalyst. Okay, <laughs> okay. So there, as so Freud, when he meets many of his hysterics, he defines them, you know, defines them from his perspective. You know, and even situations like Dora, any, many of his patients, you know, he say their yes is no, their no is yes. You know, it was a total overvoicing in many situations. But in the case of Anna O, which is like really incredible because Anna O and Hannah, it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like at first when I was reading, I was like, this can't be. She also can't speak and she mumbles. She also prays differently and she doesn't eat. It's like, no. But when Freud meets her or meets his other, other patients, it's, he's defined it, and he's, and he's really not into hearing how their experience is different than the way he defined it. And when they do, in any ways, like speak up, basically, as he says, your no is yes, your yes is no, and that, you know, that's a total silencing of, um, of his patients in that way. But here you see, in this sense, you do see a situation where we have a person who comes with her subjective pain, feels that her place is in the Mishkan, it is in the temple. She has what to, you know, she feels she can go there. It's accessible for her. And I, I'd like to say that as someone who tries to stay in the tradition and not leave when I had issues of, you know, where women's voices, others' voices, these kinds of situations are, bring to me some comfort. You know, and they could be very, very few, but it's like, okay, they've heard of something that I, and so we're so used to, oh no, women never went to the, she did, she got up, the husband didn't, the way the husband asked the question was clear that he didn't get what was, you know, the source of her deep angst, and she goes to the, she goes to the temple, prays, the priest also at first stalks her, and she's able to stand and say, no, this is not, this is it. And the, the shift of the priest, I feel, is a very beautiful, uh, a beautiful case of someone who can hear somebody else. Now, so Hannah here, I think what's special is that she has, she prays from her own private subjective pain and feels that she has a place in the temple. We're now gonna go read how the Talmud related to Chana. Who is Chana in the Talmud? And here we will go, Kama Lachot, on page 31A5. Um, uh, will someone read, just and skip over the Hebrew, and could read the English? Anybody? It says, uh, Rav Hamnuna. It, you have a little, like a triangle there? No. On 31A5? Rav Hamnuna 
how many important laws can be learned from these verses relating to Hannah? Now Hannah, she was speaking in her heart. From here we learn that one who prays is to his heart towards God. Only her lips moved. From here we derive that one who prays is to pronounce the words with his lips. But her voice was not heard. From here we derive that it is forbidden to raise one's voice during his prayers. So Eli taught her a drunkard. From here we derive that a drunkard is not permitted to pray. Okay. So what we have here is the rabbis are engaged in basically creating ritual with the destruction of the temple, right? They're trying, they are desperately trying to keep the Jewish people with hope, with the framework, and are, you know, and they have this mesechet, this mesechet brachot, is about all the laws and the minutia of how do we daven, right? What should we do? How? And they're making it like, you know, everybody's, you, you know, everybody does it at the same time. They need to structure. It's like at the height of structuring their, you know, what will happen to us post-temple. When there is no more, and they're saying, this is how you daven. You do it this way. You do it that way. And it's, and then all of a sudden, Hannah comes in the middle, and they say, Oh, we learn all these laws from Hannah. And we learn that she daven this way, so we do it this. And she did it this way, and we do it this. And I'd like to ask you, how do you understand the place of Hannah within a system that's trying to regu make everybody regulate ritual? And so if her prayers were heard, then she must have used a format okay. that was accessible to God. Okay. That's it might not be accessible to men, but, but it was accessible to God. Okay, great. Anything else? The prayer was answered, so it must have been done right. Okay. What else? Yeah. Uh-huh. So what I'm going to go a next step, and I'd like to suggest a reading. Of course, this is not the reading. There is no the reading. And that is that I think it's very special that at a time when prayer is being regularized and everybody's supposed to do things like everybody else, that the person that they bring is someone who did things differently. That in that thing called regulating prayer for everybody, there has to be a place for someone's subjective, private prayer. That very often when we, you know, all daven in a shul and we're all doing, you know, we're more or less all doing the same thing, we really don't know if the person standing next to us if her or his subjective experience and subjective pain has any mirroring in, in the prayer service. And I think bringing Hannah as a person who felt that the tradition did not, wasn't able to daven for her and had to come by herself 
and do it differently, God answers that prayer, exactly as you're saying, and that voice has to come into the time when we're regulating prayer for everybody. In other words, that somebody's subjective experience counts. And when we structure prayer, we have to know that there's going to be some people who do not experience prayer as touching them or answering their need. So that's our reading. Okay, that's our reading. And I always find it interesting why they bring one person and not others, and what do they do with it. Now, it's not enough that they just say this. I think that um, the subya develops, the, the, how do you say subya in English? The section, or the section of the Talmud develops, and we see how Hannah's character gets developed through rabbinic imagination. Did you have a, did you ever want to just? Yeah, in the discussion in the room, um, interpretation, was there any implication that, that there was a reason from God or a reason why she was not fertile in the first place? Why she had to have the suffering before her prayer could come? That, that's, a very, that's a very serious question. And that's a serious question that goes, as I said, to all these couples with the zero-sum game. One is beloved and one is barren. So, you know, she, these beloved and barren and the other gives base. There's something odd about it. And I, there is, um, it doesn't sit well with us because it's not once or twice. I would just like to share that it didn't sit well with some of the rabbis who read it and they totally redid the Leah and Rachel sister thing. They asked about it and they put them as partners and that they told each other, they gave each other signs, and one was I. There was a sense that that idea that it's constantly, you know, putting women fighting against each other for whatever the prize great shirach it was, that that didn't, it wasn't so amazing. But it is a question, I mean, there's been a lot of people who have tried to write on it, and I never really found a great answer that this zero-sum game as women were being put, you know, put one against each other, it, it, and now it could be that this reflected the time. It could have been many things. I, I never read anything that made me feel, oh, this feels nice. I never did. So I'm just, I don't know why I'm telling you the truth, but maybe, you know, somebody else has. But it really, I'm sorry? And the reverse side of this, the wife who was so fertile. And is teasing her. Was, was, was not the beloved one. Exactly. What, what, what was the message of that? It's not a great message. <laughs> it's not the best one, as we say. It's not, it's not something that we find very, or I don't want to speak in the royal we. It's not something that is totally endearing for me as I read it. I see it. It makes me uncomfortable. I was very happy when I found the Midrash on the two sisters and saying, oh, someone else felt that way before me. That really, that helped me. But it wasn't that they redid the story in any way. They just made it. They changed the story. They literally changed the story, and they changed the relationship between the sisters. But, uh, yeah. So um, we see then here that, I'm sorry, yes? It seems a little strange to me that Hannah, 
in a spontaneous moment of prayer uh, exhibit certain behaviors, which then, ironically, get codified. Yeah, and they get ritualized. Perfect. Right. Perfect. Right. And so the message is, so to take the theme further, the message is, maybe your lips will move when you pray, but maybe they won't. Just because she did it doesn't mean it has to be done that way. But now they sort of make everybody do it that way. Is that what you're saying? Well, it shouldn't be, because the message was uh, yeah. you can pray individually. And the fact that they codified what she said and said that this is the way it must be done means that it doesn't have to be done that way. That it doesn't have to be. Yes, because okay. the message is. The so the question is, what are they codifying? Are they codifying her lips moving, or are they codifying that she came on her own to daven with her own thing? Is that what you're saying? Because I want to see if I understand. Well, well, what I'm saying is her personal unique expression, which, has, which is being accepted by everyone, not by everyone, in this passage, it's being accepted in this passage, is proof that you don't have to do it the way they say you have to do right. it. Right. Right? Yeah. And so the fact that now they've codified it and said this is the way you have to do it, the message therefore is you don't really have to do it this way. Okay. Okay. That the place of individual, right. of individuality, has to be maintained when you're codifying for everybody. So you have to be able to keep the individual's experience in the context of a community that has to also codify. So we're codifying in some way the need to keep a special individual voice. That's Did right. I understand what you, okay. Right. okay. So there are those, I'd like to say, who read this and completely disagree with me and then with you. Mm -hmm. And many of my feminist sisters do. And they have written that here we see an example where the Talmud basically completely overvoices her and uses her and then usurp and then sort of silences her because they make her into who she wasn't. I'm just sharing. You can, I disagree with that, but the, I do have to say that really what they're doing is saying, you know, she wasn't who you think she was, or she may have been, but look and see how the Talmud totally silences her because then she becomes like everybody. But I disagree, and one of the reasons why I disagree with it is also because I want to disagree with it. I was happy to keep her individual voice, and that's that. But more so, I say, okay, but let's look how else they use Hannah. Let's see what else happens, and if they continue to silence her, so you may be right then. But if they don't, then I may have a, a valid reading. That's basically how I would, how I try to see what else are they doing. So let's see what else they do with Hannah. Who else does she become? Okay. You are talking about the rabbis ask Yes, the, what the rabbis make out of her, right? Because, because the Talmud is not history. It's what do they do with that image and what are they doing for us with it? Okay, so now, okay, and Ellie said to her, could Ellie you? Ellie said to her, how long will you be drunk? From here 
we learned that one who observes his friend doing something improper is obligated to reprove him. Okay. And Hannah answered and said, no, my master. Um, she said to him, you are not a master in this matter, and the divine spirit does not rest upon you that you suspect me of this thing, praying while intoxicated. Okay, this is, okay, you can do the second version. It's similar, but a little different, the second version. There are those who say that thus she said to him, are you not a master? Is not the Shekinah and the divine spirit with you that you judge me unfavorably and did not judge me favorably? Did you not know that I am a woman of a grief spirit? Okay, so here it, it goes on. We, it goes on, first it says, then, that we learn from her that if you, if you're being wrongfully accused, you should tell your tell your person. So it's as if she was there, learned that learned that this is what you're supposed to do, and then goes and does it, right? And she goes and critiques. What? How does the Talmud expand her critique from what we saw in the Bible in Samuel? She's challenging Eli. So you are not, um, you are not, um, she's challenging him and the definition of what it means to be a man of God. You are not a man of God if you do not recognize that what I, that what I am doing is praying. It is not in your religious repertoire, granted. But a man of God has to have room and has to have religious imagination that can hold another way of being with God. So in other words, we have here the critique that we see a little bit of a critique that's in Samuel, that's almost a no, you sort of know she answers him, that the Talmud really expands to the notion and gives us through her an understanding of what does a man of God do? Who is a man of God? A man of God is somebody who recognizes that he, his religious repertoire may not, may not apply to everybody. A man of God has to recognize that there's more to religious experience than in his narrow little world. And so she critiques that you can't, and in a deep way, this is what is so beautiful, is that she, a, a true man of God, this is what she's saying, what does a man of God look like? Who, it's not that she's saying, I'm not, you know, she's saying something's wrong with you. I have a religious relationship with God. I know what I am, no. And you cannot be, by definition, you cannot be a man of God if you, if you so, Isolate if you did, if you can't recognize that I also am davening. Okay. In, in the norm of this time, do we have an idea? Would, would many women have gone to the temple? Would many women have prayed publicly? 
the best part of your behavior was not different, it was just her style? Or was the fact that she was there praying at all? Would that have been Okay. I, I would, I don't know enough, and I don't think any, the fact that she went there means that it, she, it could be possible. The fact that I think that there are very few women who did that, I think it's granted. Okay, I would say that you know, it's, she's certainly a, a, a very hushed voice, silent. Not that many did that. But Eli doesn't say get out of here, you're a woman. Exactly, exactly. He sees it, he only addresses, it's bizarre. But he doesn't say get out of here, you're a woman. So those things, you know, are, it's okay because there was sort of private prayer in whatever form, even in ritualized sacrifice, you see then that people went and did what they needed to do. So on one hand, they're, um, they're uh, expanding on um, Ailey that he's uh, not reading Quran correctly. On the other hand, they're learning halakha from him when he's wrong. You that know, he, uh, like, like uh, we learn from this, even though he thinks she's drunk and she's not drunk. Now we learn that you shouldn't be drunk while you pray. Right. You know, so they're supporting him while they're. Well, they're supporting the fact that that's a, something that we know that we don't do, and she wasn't that. And she wasn't that. So I think that here we see her now critiquing that the that the that the critique is beginning to expand. If we see throughout the subya, it goes on and on. I'm just going to look at the last one, and if afterwards you want to read on your own more, and I want because I want to get to somebody else, and then we'll see if we have some time, is that this that the subya goes more and more, gives her a critical voice. She does it also to God. She does it. I mean, she's critique. She's really critique. She, it's somebody who has a voice and goes stage and stage. For me, what was very interesting is the last interaction, and that's about the Ma'im Marim, the, uh, the bitter waters. The bitter waters is something that, you know, when we read in the Bible, we don't like it that much. It's also one of those things that we feel a little ichy-ish about, that, you know, you, when the husband is jealous, then they bring the woman to the gate, and they give her to drink from this water, and if she had an affair, then her stomach will explode. And if she doesn't, then the, the, the Bible says, then you go home, get pregnant, or if you're pregnant, whatever, you go home and live your life, and that's it. I, perhaps in my more apologetic state, but I actually even believe it, if I can say, anytime when I saw that and I would teach, people would get so angry, this is so disgusting. And I, and I was trying to say then when I read it that I, we see here an example where actually the man does not own his wife. And what usually happens in these kinds of communities with people like that, the man is jealous, and then what does he do? He's jealous, and he goes, shoots her. It's done, because she belongs to me, and if I'm jealous and she made me feel uncomfortable, then I also carry out the punishment. So here you see an example that you know, you can be jealous. I mean, the, the fact that men were, are jealous and want to do something to punish her, they accept it as a norm in the Bible, but they shifted from the norm that was then, 
and that is that you may, your wife is not your property, that you can, you have a feeling, and you could do whatever punishment you wanted to her. So it was, you really, you brought it, and they did this ridiculous tekes um, uh, ceremony, and you know, if your stomach, you drank some ichit something, and you just basically, and then you went back home. It wasn't the trial that if you, they put the stone on the foot, and if you sunk, it meant that you were guilty, and if you didn't, that meant that you were a witch, and then they killed you anyhow. You know, those kinds of that, that remember, like that's what happens all the, so here you see an example of uh, actually taking the, the customs of what was done and do, giving it a slight shift and basically keeping the women alive and making them go back and so that they, they did it. Now, that custom of the Maim Marim was used in Mesechet Sota, not in this one, in another Mesechet, that discussion was used uh, in the context of can women study or not? Can we allow women to have access to what they call, like in Papua New Guinea, the magic flutes? Can women have access to the holy books or the holy words? And what is the context of that? The context of that is that what the rabbis decided and this is a statement that schut tolala. The rabbis decided that, it, or they exclaimed it as a, as a given, that if a woman did a good deed, then the bitter waters would not influence or wouldn't have to take, take uh, influence right away. In other words, that if she gave in the next morning tzedakah, she could have, she could drink the bitter waters and nothing would happen to her for a while. Okay, that was a given. In other words, that charity, good deeds delays the punishment. And they decided how many, how much does it delay? By a month, by two months, whatever. They had a whole conversation about that. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. I certainly am. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. The question comes, should we teach women to learn? Why? Because so one rabbi says, if we teach them to learn, then they'll learn what to do. So at night, they'll have an affair, and in the morning, they'll give tzaka, and then they'll get off tzaka. So we better not teach them knowledge, because if we teach them knowledge, they'll have control over bad behavior. Comes the other one and decides what? No, we have to teach them, because if we don't teach them, she'll think that it's really okay to have affairs. And she may be that kind of person who has affairs and does also real nice, real nice charity. And so she won't think that it's really not allowed to have affairs. So we have to teach her that the only reason why she's not being punished is because she did a good deed. So they have this discussion, should we, shouldn't we teach women to study? There's a term that some people use. It's a kind of fancyish term, not so just to share. It's called intertextuality. We won't go into what that really is. It's not. But what we see here is Chana relating to the Ma'im Marim. And I would like to suggest that she's not only then critical of the priests, 
critical of God that, the, that even the rabbis or some rabbis felt very uncomfortable with this way of portraying women and gave in Hannah's voice another reading of the Ma'im Marim. So that we see as we built, she gets built and built. And what is that? This is what I'd like us just to read that. And we're finished with Hannah for now. We go to um, the last page. And that is on the top, or to the left side, 31B2 on the bottom. Could you someone read it in English? If you take note, would you like to read? Great. Note of the suffering of your maidservant. Why the repetitive phrase, said Rabbi Eliezer, uh, Hannah said before the Holy One, Blessed is he, master of the universe. If you take note of my suffering and grant me a child, fine. But if not, then you will take note. I will take steps to force that outcome. I will go and seclude myself with another man in front of my husband, Elkanah, provoking him into suspecting me of infidelity and warning me against secluding myself with that man again. And when I again seclude myself with him in the presence of two witnesses, they will give me to drink the water of the sota, and surely you will not belie your Torah. For in the Torah it is stated with regard to an innocent woman who drinks the waters of the sota, then she shall be proven innocent and she shall bear seed. Okay, so what is Hannah here saying? Guess what, guys? I studied, I know, and do you think in your fakakta head? that women are going to learn in order to have affairs, that may be your issue. I learned, I know, and what am I doing with what I know? I'm going to have a baby. So I would like to suggest that even the, those who, um, who edited the Talmud in whatever way, not everyone felt so amazing with what happened in Masechet Sotah that the conversation about women's knowledge and what, they ha what happens when they control their behavior, they control their body, is that they will then do icky things. What this, this section is saying, you know something? I will know, I've learned, and I will use what I've learned for what I, want, what I believe to be my nature. Because that's the, most of the sugya you'll see as she says, God, if you created me as a woman, if you created, if it gave me breasts, how can you not let me nurse a child? I mean, there's this constant, like, you know, she's fighting with this. She's, you know, she's really, in, she's talking about who she feels herself, her essential self, and that's her essential pain, and this is how she experiences herself. And so at the end, it was like when I saw this, and I had learned it many times, and I never thought of it as, okay, as connected to the other sugya in Masechet Sotan, I was saying here, wow, you know, even that sugya, which is really not attractive, somebody else didn't like it so much. Somebody else felt, eh. So I just wanted to share that, so that in the sense that I think that what Chana, as we say, as a social critic, I think we see her as critiquing a priest who says, 
I will define you because my religious imagination never saw anybody like you. And then she goes on and it says, and I, you are not a man of God. It's not just, you know, you don't have religious imagination, I'm really okay. But it's you cannot be. The very definition of a man of God is someone who can notice that there's other ways to be with God than what he's used to. The actual noticing that there may be other ways to approach God, and it's the term is you are not a man of God. If my religious, if you can't tell that what I am doing is a different kind of religion and that it comes from a certain place. And then throughout the Suyashi, then she critiques God. And then at the end, this, I think that they use this thing to say, yes, she's also a learned woman and using her, what she knows to do and be who she wants to be, which is, okay, yes, you want? Um, it's interesting. Her only real um, sin was to uh, pray without uh, wordlessly. Now, I wonder if she were a male and he came in to the temple and prayed in the same way that she did, if the priest would accuse him of being a drunkard or being drunk. We, I don't, you know what, the thing is that I don't know and I don't even have to know because it was through her. It was through her difference. And don't forget that she, he, I mean, it, you know, she did not eat out of the prayer of her husband, right? She would not swallow, she would not eat from the sacrifice. I don't know, it would be presumptuous for me to say, I, well, if it was this, then for sure, they would have been nice to her. We also, what I think that what I like to learn from, and when I use gender as a lens in other ways, I think that when we hear about this, then we ask your question, and what we come to is to say that many men also, their subjective experience was not noted. I, I don't, when I study gender and I say, oh, a woman, uh, this showed me that this woman's experience was not honored, we learned that there's many men whose experiences were not honored. Right? The notion of invisibility of women in feminist theory brings us to learn about invisibility, period. Right? So I think that that's, um, that's important. So then we will ask, it's not women per se, it's different religious experiences that we learn through Hana, and it will be for everybody. You, uh, just one other thing, like I send my students to when I, when I teach methodology, I send them to do a um, an ob observation to just to watch in a kinder in um, watch in a schoolyard, and I say to write down what do you see, and they always come back with the boys are playing in Israel. I don't know what how it is here, but the boys are playing soccer, and the girls are doing hopscotch on the side. So one of my things always is, and it's just an answer to what you're asking. There's I make them take away the the. And in Hebrew, it's a hey, ha-yeladim, v'habanim, v'habanot. I said, that hey just has to do with God. We don't, there's no the. And then I say, how many boys were in the play guard? So they, I say, how many boys does it take to make a soccer team? 12, 13, if you need some. So together, there's about 25 boys on the, on the soccer team, right? On the soccer field. In the, and then I say, well, how many boys are in that school? 
there's 400 kids in the school, there's 200 boys. So how many, you haven't seen 175 boys. So because you start, and so then I make them go back the next time and start looking in the bathrooms to see who's hiding and look under the tables and look in all the places who has nobody to play with and which boys are on the side that you didn't even look at them because you then used a certain norm by these and then the girls. So th that's what I mean about, I don't think that men who resisted certain positions of power in the Jewish tradition or others had a much better deal than women. I don't think so. I think though that when we look at Hana, we ask then who else's prayer was not recognized. It gives us a way to look at everybody. It gives us a way to look at who else was different, who else felt that their subjective experience wasn't answered. And then comes how do we relate to difference in general in our whole shul. You know, I think that Hana teaches us about all people who had an experience that their subjective spiritual need and craving had no place. Often when, when we study this, we're always taught that this is this story is about the power of prayer, as is the book of Jonah. And so your, your spin is totally different from that. Uh, how do you react? I, I'm sure you've heard that as well. Right. So how, how do you respond to that? Um, you know, what I try to do often is that I don't think that that is a wrong reading at all. This is what compelled me, and this is what I'm sharing, in all honesty. Now, many of them, of other people's reading, will tell me I don't read properly and all that. But I don't, I don't think that um, what I need to do in order to present what I'm presenting is to, I mean, and you, if I'll be happy to send you the chapter if you want to see how I do. Like, But what I try to do is say, this is the evidence, this is how I come to what I know from this chapter. So that I, I read Chana, I read what she's answers, and then I say, okay, now what did the Talmud do with her? And we see her, and I feel that what, uh, the interpretation that I'm giving is a legitimate one based on the fact that I'm building one after another after another of her as a, used as a social critic. Of course, there's many other parts to it. It's about prayer. It's about, it could be the power of prayer. The, it could be many, many, many other things. And I think that it's really, it, it's not, and I'm not going to the regular thing of elu ve'elu divrei Elohim. I'm not even, I don't even have to do that. I think there's a genuine other ways that people t take it. And that's really what is so rich about these texts. And that is that people really can claim other parts for themselves. The question that I ask myself, like as a woman, as someone who tries to find again a possibility for reading and for saying this, we, I don't have to leave the tradition to, to, to stay here, is, is what I'm, am I doing? Do I feel like there's integrity in that reading? And I believe that there is integrity, although what, you know, when I teach my students, what's the definition of insanity? My psychologist is when you think you're the only sane person, right? So I always say, though, but you know, as psychologists, your job is to hold on to that child who feels that they're so different in there that you have to mirror back that they're really okay. So I'm lucky that I'm not alone completely in reading it this way, but I'm very aware that there's other things, and there's, at different times, there's certain things that will compel you more than others, that the reading of the power of prayer is what we're doing. And here I was reading the power of someone to say, 
I have a place in the tradition. I mean, I have a place in that temple, and I'm going there, and I'm doing it my way, and you can't, you can't tell me that I'm drunk or that I'm crazy because I want to get to God in a different way, or I need to get to God in a different way. And that's, I think, also such a challenge, and it's such a challenge in the Talmud because this is what you were saying, is that this is the time where they're codifying everything. Like everything is being, you know what I mean? It's, there's no temple and we gotta, get, you know, we gotta give them that little suitcase to go and build their communities and to say they can do it. And actually at the time of codifying, they're taking the person who said, I get to this differently than you. So there are those who are gonna say, oh, they're saying it and then they're silencing her and usurping it into saying, okay, she was different, but no, the one who was different, you'll see everything is now we're all like her. And there's the other voice. What is interesting for me, when I started doing research I, um, around the women's prayer services and around starting the shul that I started in Jerusalem, I went to look at um, many of the rabbis who were not so impressed by what I was doing, to put it mildly, and thought, <laughs> whatever. And what was incredible, when you read the, their tshuvot, their responsa against women, they then bring in Hannah. It was like such a thing like this. It was, that's why it was like, I have this thing with Hannah. I know you, Hannah, you're my, but it was like, then they used it and they said, oh, don't you learn from Hannah that women are supposed to be silent? And I'm, you know, and these are like rabbis who are very intelligent. You know, don't you know the ideal is to be quiet? And it was like, you know, and this is why I'm saying, I'm very cognizant that they read something different. And therefore, you be quiet, because you're, you're supposed to pray privately, quietly. Why do you need all this tumult? And it's incredible how, like, there's, like, about, in the answer to whether women can be rabbis, in the answer, what about the women's prayer? It's all of these, they bring chana as the ideal quiet little girl. And you should also be quiet and be happy being quiet. So it's that way that, and that's it. This, it's like really interesting how there's many different stories that come from, from this thing. And one is to critique anybody who thinks that they can go on their own and pray and make a group and pray. Okay. Yes. Yeah. I don't need you to be my translator. Yeah. Yeah. I don't need you to be the, um, you know, I can get to God on my own. And I don't, you know, it's, we don't need this, um, you know, this mediator. So I, yes. And so, and again, and I would, I would just say again, that I think that that could be one of the things that's very compelling why we might read this on Rosh Hashanah when it is about tshuva. It's not only the powerful, but that someone even big like Eli, he really was a big man. That's, that's what it is. He was truly the big man because he can say, go in peace. The fact that he stayed 
and he listened. It's really for me like it's such a beautiful, a beautiful statement about the possibility when people are in power that that he's the high priest and he truly is a man of God then because he could hear. And the, and, Chaz, and the rabbis expanded even more. You are not a man of God if you don't, you're not, a, and, he, and you know, even more saying, I mean, using that a man of God needs to be able to go beyond what he is used to, because if he's not, by definition, he's not a man of God. It's like they made the definition of who is a man of God, who is able to understand when someone in their community is struggling. And if they don't see it, if they don't see that person, then by definition, they cannot be a man of God. Okay, now we're gonna go to Bruria, who many of us have heard about, and have heard about her, it's, it's as, as she is known as the wife of Rabbi Meir. But she apparently had some personality herself. And many times in, I know I would say, I come from more in traditional Judaism, that many of the things that we sometimes look for when we want to bring change about is we look for precedents. Oh, was there somebody who, David, was there somebody who was able to critique the priests? Was there someone who actually learned? Because, you know, when you come from Mesechet Sotah, they, you know, basically, women were denied access to the books. Mostly women did not have access to learning. Now, so, and you know, and only till many, many generations, like, oh, like about 100 years ago, the Chafetz Chaim, who reads that portion in Mesechet Sotah that we, we talked about, he on the little, you know, on the, well, you know, his, one of the little squigglies on the bottom, says, times have changed, and no longer do women, do families live in nuclear families, and um, people now are spread all over, and what can you do? Do Mothers aren't teaching daughters, and it's not only going tradition, so we have to make change, and women, therefore, are allowed to study. And it was through him, that was the beginning of Beis Yaakov, and that, that you could, that, you know, he declared that times have changed. I used to ask, what happens if I say times have changed? Why am I a rebel and he's fine? It's who is allowed to say that times have changed? That's something else. But that's that is so but we often look for precedent or was there at we you know, we, we wanna believe that women can learn Talmud, that women are learning, that they have that's really, you know, access to the magic flutes. And you know, we look and say, Oh, there was a case that we see that woman Bruria. Now, one of the things that I would like to suggest is that it, what's interesting or compelling about Bruria is not that she studied and using her as some kind of prototype. Oh, there is, then therefore I can, and then everything's done. But in that way, sometimes we lose what she had to teach us. She had something to teach us through her knowledge, and too often, because we're so excited that there was a person, we don't listen to the content of what it is that she knew or you know, had to say. So I would like us to read, I you know, chose three, a couple, but we, we can just, we'll read just these three of what was Bruria, who is she, and more 
what does she have to say? What did the Talmud give her as someone who lived very closely with rabbinic power and rabbinic family? What does she have to say? And around what, which issues do they, um, um, did she have, like what were the things that she was talking about? So let's start at the beginning, Rabbi Yosei Aglili. Who would like to read? Please. Would you like to? Yes. By what road he asked her, do we go to Lida? Lida is Lod, uh, yeah. Lod. Uh, foolish Galilean, she replied, not the sages say this, engage not much in talk with women. You should have asked, by which to Lida? OK. So what do we see here? Snippy. Snippy, OK. What else was she snippy about? I, I think she's, in a way, critiquing the injunction not to speak to women. OK. Because she's, I mean, you asked an innocent question. She shortened it by two words. She shortened it by two words. What do you think, Elsa? <laughs> like he should be counting his, his alphabet. <laughs> that he should be. There may be also another way to understand what he asked even though the, the Rashi doesn't say that. But I, Rabbi Yossi Aglili was once on a journey when he met Bruria. By what road he asked her, do we go to Lida? In other words, in other words, not so kosher. Right? By which way do we go to Lida? And what she answers him right away, basically, is we are not going anywhere, <laughs> right? And if you do a come on to me, what does she call him? He begins with Rabbi Yossi Aglili, and then he turns into Foolish, foolish Galilean. In other words, she ripped, you know, we have so many, this, she, the, the Talmud, it's not so much who she is really or not. But what you see is that the Talmud can say to her, by the behavior of the man in power, who is using his power or is not so kosher, you no longer can be a rabbi. We wish that would happen more often today if we were to use her as a precedent, really. But um, so by, by how are we going to Lod? Guess what? We're not going anywhere. And after this sentence, you no longer are a rabbi. It's again, what does that rabbinic role or what does this powerful role mean? And when do you stop being it? So Hannah will say, you're not a man of God if you don't recognize my religious needs, my religious spirit. And Bruria here is going to say, you know what? When you start up with women and you behave this way, no longer the rabbi. You start as a rabbi, very quickly the Talmud strips you of your name. Okay, now we go on to the next place. The next story. Bruria, could, could you continue or someone, would you mind? Bruria once discovered a student who was learning an undertone. Rebuking him, she explained, is it not written, ordered in all things and sure, if it is ordered in your 248 limbs, it will be sure. Otherwise, it will not be sure. 
Okay, what this is, it doesn't really make much sense, but sure. But what it is is that Bruria is in the study hall with the men. Okay, she's there, which is also an important thing for us to know that it's not only that she, you know, studied on her own with her father, you know. What the, the accessibility of knowledge for women was basically in two ways. One were just daughters of rabbis, and many of them, were, their fathers taught them, because usually the girls developed quicker, quicker so that you know, they were the ones who were more interested than the, than the boys until they grew up. Or you know, they were from a certain aristocratic home, and sometimes they had private teachers. That was sort of the way that some women learned. But it was usually what we thought of is that they were really in the rishutayach, in the private realm of their home. So here you see Bruria in the study hall. So, and she's walking up and down the aisles of the study hall. In other words, she's not only like also studying and in the corner, she's the teacher. She is someone in the Bet Midrash and is there. Now, <clears throat> she sees somebody in what we call disembodied learning. You know, yeshiva boys sometimes, and not just them, anybody's in the university, it's like these talking heads, like this disembodied bop, 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 right? Now, she is saying there's something deeper about learning that you need to do it with your whole body. There's something about disembodied learning you forget, and therefore, so the, the example is that you have to learn it full, fully. There's a very, it's a very, um, so she also, it's really interesting that she's for embodied learning. I mean, and it's just the whole thing is, is so modern that it's like, it's, it's striking about what is it that, but what she's saying, when you study this way, you're going to forget it. It won't stay. And so the Talmud then puts her in the Bet Midrash, gives her the voice of, listen, yeshiva guys, stop just doing being these talking heads, because that's not amazing. Study in a different way. And she said, and study in a different way for what? So that it will remain with you. You know, it's, she's, right before she's pushing for, for modest behavior and for morality, here she's giving them, saying, there's a way to learn that it will stay with you, and there's a way to learn when you're just, you know, fulfilling the na 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 and it's gone. So she's here, is, she's not just she knows how to learn. But it's a way to learn, and she's teaching, and she's telling people this is how you have to learn. The last thing that we're going to read together is about Bruria and her husband. Someone read. There was once some highwaymen in the neighborhood of Rebmeir who caused him a great deal of trouble. Rebmeir accordingly prayed that they should die. His wife Bruria said to him, "How do you make out that such a prayer should be permitted?" Because it is written, let hatim be. That's sins. Mm -hmm. Is it written hatim? Hatim, that's sinners. So she's making a distinction in the place in the, in the, in the prophets between, um, between sinners, sinners and sins. Okay? It is written hatim. Further look at the, ver uh, look at the, uh, the verse. Let the wicked men be no more. Since the sins will cease, there will be no more wicked men. Rather, pray for them that they should repent, and there will be no more wicked. He did pray for them, 
Okay, so here we see Bruria in relationship with her husband. We see that <coughs> some people are bothering him, right? And so he gets very nervous. And she does the, you know, that distinction, it's their behavior is bad. It's not that they're bad. You know, we make that distinction between their actions or who they are. And then, and he just right away just, he helps get rid of them, just get rid of them from me. And here you see also her as someone who really respects her husband's prayer and says, use your power of prayer for good. You have a lot of power, and it's going to be up to you. You can use your prayer, and they're going to die, or use your prayer for, to really to request that they change, you know, really that they do tshuva. And he listens to her. He prays, and they repent. So in other words, here we have the example of her in relationship to her husband. It's, she's, again, saying, use your power you can do it this way, or you can do it that way. And do it for a way. And you know, the way she does it, again, is through the little spitzke of, of words in, in, in the prophet. They meet, you know, you know, you can have the little extra little dot or not the dot. So we see her like with total mastery of the, of the texts and using it and saying, well, use it for good. Now, I just, I want to conclude, we're all tired. I wanted just to say that um, when people ask me, or they ask, you know, why do I stay in tradition? Why do I stay in traditional Judaism, even though, you know, very often as a feminist, as a, where, where do you, why and how? So why these sections in the Talmud are so important for me and why they, um, they give me hope or they give me a place, it is not that when I read these, I say, well, all of Judaism is just fabulous and everything is great. We have nothing to change. And, or, and this is, I'd never say that this is the majority of, of the texts. I never say that all of Judaism, there's no problems. But what I do feel, is that I feel that I can walk with integrity and say, this is also part of the Jewish tradition. And taking the content from Bell Hooks, who says from margin to center in, you know, in racial relations in the place of African-American women, is that I say that for us now, the question is, what part of our traditions do we want to make center and we want to put in the center? Of course there's issues with the tradition. Of course there's going to be really some very painful texts. And I'm the last one to gloss over the difficult texts in the Jewish tradition. But the question really that we, I would like us to ask is can we move, as people now who are inheriting the tradition, can we take responsibility and move from the, from the margins and move them to the center? with the full honesty that they're not the loudest voice. I don't think that we need to, you know, we use the model of archaeology and you say, oh, some tradition, they, like they found, they found that, they found that statue of a woman. Don't you see there was once that someone said a woman should be, we can pray to a woman. 
I don't think with honesty that that is the situation in the Jewish tradition. I don't think we have to find some statute to say, okay, women and others can have a place in the tradition. But I, so what I feel about these, and these are just some, I mean, I think that there's a lot more, that there's a lot of sensitivity. There are many places that will say, yeah, you, Tova, you can find yourself here. There's a lot more that are more challenging, and yes, that's true. But I do think that it's gonna be up to us, and since we're all, is can we or do we want to move what was margin, marginal in some way to the center or not? And these women that I, we learn who were knowledgeable, who were given voices to critique really places where the tradition went bad, whether it was in sexual morality, whether it was disembodied learning, whether it was using power to destroy other people. Those are very serious voices. And they were marginal, but I have made a choice to bring them central in my life. And so I want to thank you for inviting me. Thank you. And for coming. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you've just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybaitmadrash.org and donating to Valley Beit Midrash to support the expansion of meaningful Jewish education. Thank you so much for listening.